Hello, it's uh, the seventh episode of The Case Against. My name's Gary Meese. I'm the author of three books on the West Memphis Three, Blood on Black, Where the Monsters Go, and a condensed, revised Comp, uh, combined version called called uh, the case against the West Memphis Three Killers. <clears throat> what we're going to talk about today are the uh, other suspects in the West Memphis Three case. Um, commonly thrown about that the West Memphis Three. Uh, the West Memphis Police focused on Damian Eccles to the virtual exclusion of all other possible suspects, and you know, just simply ignored everybody, anybody else who might have been a potential suspect, because they just they decided that Eccles, because he apparently, I mean, this is the story that keeps getting told, because he wore black T-shirts, listened to Metallica. And had a slightly unusual haircut that the police had determined that he was the killer of these three small boys. Obviously, the reality, even at its most basic level, has to be much more nuanced than that. But that is that's not how it's often presented. It's presented as... Indeed, this was the reason why he was picked out. Jason Baldwin is one of the other killers. Throws this up constantly. And, uh, and that's his explanation. Of course, Baldwin didn't even look that unusual. He was kind of an ordinary looking Heavy metal look, heavy metal type kid, head banging type kid. So the idea that he stood out in the crowd, as I've said repeatedly, and I'm going to keep saying it, it's ridiculous. Now, before I get into, uh, I'm going to read basically uh, read from um, my book. Blood on Black, and it's called the Cauldron of a Swirling Cauldron of Suspects. And uh, before I get into that, I wanted to mention that uh, several Swirling Cauldron of Suspicion. Uh, before I get into that, uh, I wanted to mention seems like there was something else I really wanted to mention, but I, I, I did mention that I watched uh, Joe Berlinger's new series on Netflix um, about Ted Bundy. And uh, apparently Berlinger also has another film that's sort of a fictionalized version of the, uh, of a romance that, long-term romance that Bundy had with uh, his fiance and the uh, Oregon, I think it was, or Washington, and Elizabeth and Knopfler, I think it was her name, something like that. But anyway, uh, uh, and I haven't seen that movie. I don't know where it's available. Uh, apparently, it did well at one of the film festivals. Um, I want to say briefly that. Uh, The, Bund the Bundy series, it was, to me, it was interesting because it, I think it's an inherently interesting case, and Bundy's an inherently interesting character. Um, and there was a lot of archival-type footage that was very interesting, in photos and so forth, that was very interesting. And uh, some tape recordings that from Bundy that were all very interesting and nothing I hadn't 
for the most part, I don't think there was much I hadn't seen before as far as the real stuff. Interspersed with that is, is and really, as far as I'm concerned, detracting from the project was Berlinger's own original uh, contributions to the project, which is his rapid-fire editing of various images in the background as, as people talk. And uh, it gets to be, you know, at, at times, uh, well, I want to describe, like, Bundy doing household chores. There was a rapid montage of 50s types images of, of you know, implements from the a kitchen you might find in the average, in the average uh, 50s household. And it was silly, and it was really laughable. Much of the rest of it was not much better. Um, I find it particularly objectionable that he, he he's done this a lot. You know, for somebody who's supposed to be a documentarian, he just simply he, he presents scenes that could be taken for actual footage of, of, of events, but the, I don't know what his sources are. But uh, it, it, they could either be archival footage from uh, from that era, but not of the actual events. In some cases, they might they might you might actually have somebody took a film of Ted Bundy and his girlfriend walking down the street. I don't think so. Instead, what you have is a is footage of a a, a young man and young woman in seventies looking garb going down the street. You don't know if this is something Berlinger staged for the film or if it's actual footage from the 1970s. You don't know what his source is. You don't know if it's stock footage or is somehow if it was even taken on the same side of the country as the footage would have been if you'd actually gotten Ted and his Bundy and his girlfriend going down the street together. You don't know anything about it. And it's, to me, it's extremely misleading. And he's he's done this. He's fallen back on this device a lot. A lot of his fellow filmmakers do this, and you know, to me, it's profoundly misleading. Honestly, uh, the subject matter alone, and the generous uh, resources he had available to him with with uh, the Bundy files, should have been sufficient to put together an actual doc documentary rather than this joke of a documentary he put together and I'm not I'm saying that with the caveat that you know particularly the most of the uh, audio portions are actually you know pretty decent they're well edited together and I, I suspect he's I gather that he does he's done some of the similar sorts of things where he's cobbled together audio portions that really maybe shouldn't have gone shouldn't have been done that way give a misleading impression but, you know, he's been giving misleading impressions for his whole career, uh, with the Paradise Lost movies being uh, the real start of all this. I, I don't know what he did on Brother's Keeper. Um, I don't know if that if that was as honest as it could have been or if he, he played games there, but, you know... He's been he was dishonest with the the families of the, the victims here and and I suspect he's probably been dishonest with lots of other people maybe all the way back to Brothers Keeper perhaps before that he'll claim he's honest I will give him that he'll he will say he's really honest and principled and all that but I, I see no signs of it anyway. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about uh, the swirling cauldron of suspicion. Okay, this is concerning the May fifth, nineteen ninety three murders of Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Christopher Byers in a small patch of woods in West Memphis, Arkansas, on May 5th, 1990. Did I say May 5th, 1993 already? Well, I'll say it again. Okay. Here we go. In the days after the bodies were found, the murders of Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch, and Michael Moore had everyone 
around the greater Mid-South speculating about motives and suspects. Early on, West Memphis police had a list of potential suspects. They checked out numerous tips and investigated violent felons and sex offenders, as well as surveying records on truckers. They served Vietnam veterans based on an FBI profile of potential suspects because supposedly the, the wounds the wounds and the circumstances in which the boys were tied up, etc., were reminiscent of uh, some of the... Uh, I'll keep losing my place in this. Losing, uh, we're reminiscent of um, some of the actions in the uh, uh, Vietnam War. I'm reading from a text and I'm getting, for some reason, it's not giving me what I want. Excuse me just a second. Over the following weeks, police continued to pursue a long list of potential suspects, talking to over 70, clearing many through alibis and polygraph examinations. Shortly after the boys were found, the department issued radio calls about a bearded transient on a bicycle headed toward Forest City and two young male hitchhikers around Osceola. Forest City's to the uh, west of uh, West Memphis. Just keep going down I-40, you'll get there, and Osceola is to the north, uh, up up I-55. Uh, they they didn't get any they didn't get any results from these calls, uh, radio calls about these these different people. As tips came flooding in, names including that of Damian Eccles popped up again and again. Some had alibis, while others could only guess at what they did that evening. Police relied heavily on polygraph tests. Because, the evidence, because of the evidence piling up against him, Eccles remained a person of interest. Investigation yielded a wealth of puzzling episodes and sightings, most notably Mr. Bojangles, a disheveled, bleeding black man who stumbled into the woman's restroom at a fried chicken eatery leaving bloodstains and excrement upon his departure an hour later on the night of the killings. Police made a number of miscalculations and missteps in handling the matter. Police failed to collect evidence initially, lost a blood sample collected the next day, and failed to determine the identity of Mr. Bojangles. As a result, a fairly typical nuisance call became a crucial component of the myth of the West Memphis Three. Let me say, say here that, you know, there's a lot of criticism of Officer Regina Meek for uh, not not having gone into the, the restaurant to check out the scene. But basically, he had left at that point, and basically all she would have been confronted with is a filthy bathroom. Uh, she did get out, look around, try to determine who... This guy left on foot, tried to determine where he might have gone, where he might be, see if she could help him out, etc., and was unable to do that. It was getting, it was very close to dark at that point. Uh, it's, this was on Missouri Street. There's a, quite a bit of transient foot traffic along this area. West Memphis, more than many places, is has more has its share of uh pedestrian wanderers shall i shall i shall we say people who just seem to be sort of wandering around not really up to much and a lot of it's perfectly innocent or you know uh but you know there are a lot of people around that area in particular because where where it's located it it uh there's a wooded type area right behind there that really lent its, and there's railroad tracks, and it lent itself to uh, transients and uh, people camping out and people who just wanted to get out of the way for a while. So it's not as if this was some sort of, it, 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 the incident is bizarre, and it does, it seems more bizarre than it actually is if you don't have much experience with, number one, West Memphis, or number two, 
kind of calls that mo many local police stations get um, concerning various nuisances and vandalisms and strange, strange little happenings, because it happens many, many places. Obviously, some places are a lot quieter than others. West Memphis is not one of those places. Anyway, she, she handled the. She handled. She was more concerned about finding two boy, three missing boys. Uh, and she had other call, other calls she had to answer as well. Than she was trying to track down a guy who had already left the scene after messing up a bathroom. Okay, back to the book. There's no evidence that it, the apparently intoxicated man with a cast on one arm had anything to do with subduing three eight-year-olds, but the incident provided a wealth of material for speculation and didn't, 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 criticism, I'm not going to try to say that word, uh, of the police for several decades. The tattooed man also prompted speculation. A little rock man named Ken Govar told police on May 8th that he had picked up a white man in his mid-twenties while traveling eastbound 20 miles outside Little Rock on Interstate 40. The man, angry because his prior ride had stolen gasoline and was drinking and using drugs, had a large tattoo of a devil on his left forearm. Quote, this is from Govar, he had the devil of a face of a traditional devil, like you would draw a devil with a pointed chin and you know the horns and everything. That's what the face of the thing, but it was... A terribly terrifying tattoo. I mean, you looked at it, you were terrified. It was horrible. And and Govar. Govar said uh, the hitchhiker had quote a kind of sick mind, kind of sick tattoo. I'm sorry. What was wrong with me today? Kind of sick tattoo of a bone with blood as the background on his right inside forearm. Around 3.30 p.m. on May 5th, the tattooed man asked to be dropped off at a convenience store in West Memphis on the south side of the interstate. Quote, he wanted to go specifically to the south side of the freeway, and he wanted off right in this at this one place at a truck stop across from the dog track. The man supposedly was, that was, uh, from most of that was from Govar, uh, the man supposedly was traveling to Knoxville. Govar was willing to take him further, but the man insisted on being dropped off there near the site of the murders. Quote, this guy was wired. He was, ang he was angry. He was angry. Let me just say that uh, where the hitchhiker asked to be dropped off was would have been roughly in the area of Ingram Boulevard, which is the road that leads up from Broadway up up to the uh, across the interstate up to uh, Southland Park Casino, uh, would have been very close to where uh, Narlene Hollingsworth that night that night would pick up uh, Dixie Dixie Hufford uh, at the the laundromat there, and. Uh, was quite close to where the killings occurred. Govar said the hitchhiker would not give his name, seemed to be more familiar with Little Rock than would be expected, seemed too pale and too knowledgeable about mechanics to be a tree trimmer, and was, was neither drunk nor smelly like the usual hitchhiker. The man has never been identified. There was no evidence linking the tattooed man to the murders. And they have no idea who this guy is, to put it mildly. There's some speculation. Police quickly began checking out other leads, with much of the early focus on reports of a white van. The sort of vehicle mentioned around the world in urban legends about stalking and kidnapping children. The police took this tip fairly seriously early on. Uh, investigators were dispatched door-to-door -door in the nearby neighborhood, as well as the Mayfair apartments. Police 
checked out weirdos, anyone wearing a uniform, and manifold hot tips, as well as a variety of transients. They brought in a local school teacher for questioning. One of the strangest stories was of a man with long hair and cut-off jeans who told a Memphis cab driver he had been in West Memphis and wanted to go to Nashville before paying, finally paying $390 to be dropped off in Centerville, Tennessee, which is a long, <laughs> which is a long way from West Memphis. That lead led nowhere. In another tangential aspect of the case, more extensively covered than much of the evidence against the killers, young Chris Morgan and Brian Holland came under suspicion for leaving Memphis for California shortly after the killings. Morgan and Morgan's parents and a former girlfriend lived in West Memphis. Morgan once had an ice cream route in the victim's neighborhood. He knew the little boys. I'll say that's those are all seem very tenuous reasons for actually making him some sort of suspect. But uh, I'm going to read on, but, you know, he, he, deception was indicated in the polygraph, and then that that's when the guilt, the it, suspicions grew that he might somehow be guilty of this crime. Uh, just moving out of town hardly seems reason particularly a young person looking for work or just looking for a change, uh, hardly seems a reason to suspect somebody. But anyway, Morgan voluntarily showed up when he learned police in Oceanside, California, wanted to question him. When deception was indicated in a polygraph test, he underwent hours of interrogation. And that's the, and after 17 hours... And that's the type of interrogation that uh, people claim uh, Jesse Miskelly was subjected to when there's no evidence that he was subjected to anything like that. Um, after 17 hours, the frustrated Morgan, quote, confessed, unquote, suggesting that maybe he had killed the boys after he, quote, blacked out, unquote. Morgan immediately retracted the statement. And in context, it was more like, oh, yeah, you know, I kill, you know, it was, some, it was really sounded more like a sarcastic remark. Somebody gets fed up and frustrated and admits to something without really admitting it by saying, oh, yeah, I killed them. Um, which can get you in trouble, but, you know, it's questionable whether that should be taken seriously. Police soon ruled out Morgan as a suspect. Eccles' defense lawyers wanted to present him on the stand. Prosecution said Morgan had no relevance. Morgan threatened to invoke his rights against self-incrimination if forced to testify. Judge Burnett ruled that he would not compel Morgan to testify. From start to finish, the Morgan matter was much ado about not much. Yeah, there was a little bit there, but it didn't go anywhere. Three knives were confiscated early in the investigation from Richard Cummings, considered a possible suspect. More, Cummings first drew attention on May 9th on a tip that he had been drilling peepholes into walls to spy on a female neighbor in the Mayfair apartments. And the Mayfair apartments were right across the 10-mile bayou from uh, Robin Hood Hills where the killings occurred. The boys would have, had, would have passed right by Mayfair apartments and they crossing the pipe would they would have been visible to residents of the Mayfair many some of the residents of the Mayfair apartments uh, on May 10th Cummings 23 told police that he was home until 10 p.m. on May 5th when his mother picked him up to take him to his job as a janitor at the Iron Skillet restaurant it's really not much of an alibi but Anyway, let's go on. Uh, police investigated possible links between Cummings and a murder rape of a 12-year-old boy on a bicycle near Ithaca, New York in 1990, not far from Cummings' hometown. The body was found nude, bound with duct tape at wrist and ankles, gagged and bound to a tree. While the murder had strong similarities to the West Memphis case, possible connections never panned out. After investigation, Cummings was not considered a suspect. Vicki Hutchinson, 
who was the mother of Aaron Hutchison and a, a, a good friend of the Dead Boys and also a good friend of Jesse Miskelly, on May 28th gave West Memphis police the names of several associates of Damian Eccles. And Eccles had, as I've explained earlier, had for very good reason had become uh, a prime suspect. Uh, the so associate, the names of the associates included uh, Sean Webb, also known as Spider or Red, Lucy or Lucifer, Robert Burks, which is, who was actually Robert Birch, also known as Snake, some little boy named Jason, quote, that was a quote, who lived in Lakeshore, and Jesse Miskelly. She described the mysterious Lucy, or Lucifer, as an older guy, about 30, who drove an older, beaten-up car such as the Impala or Caprice painted with primer. He had brownish hair and a big nose and wore glasses. Other than his age, the description did not match an unnamed Lakeshore resident who gave orders at devil worship sessions organized by Eccles, as described by Miskelly. This Lucifer, I, this is not from the book, but this Lucifer character pops up uh, in other mentions from other people. Enough that you would think there was some reality to them, to him, um, even if we never, even if the descriptions are so widely at variance with each other. Uh, now, I go on to explain this in the book. Uh, investigators turned up others who described an adult with name variations on Lucifer, who seemed to be leading, such as Lucifer, who seemed to be leading cult activities, through, though physical descriptions were wildly at variance. According to Hutchison, Robert, quote, Robert Burks, unquote, had told a girl that he had killed the three boys and that if she opened her mouth, she would be next. The rumors about who said what circulated around West Memphis, often circling around a small set of suspicious persons, often including Eccles and R. Baldwin, with rumored suspects spreading rumors about other potential suspects. For example, a Joni Brown reported on June 28th that Whitney Nix had told her on May 14th that Robert Felix Birch, a.k.a. Snake, had said that he and Eccles had committed the murders and would commit two more. Uh, the committing two more sounds very much like what Eccles said at uh, softball games when he confessed to the crowd that he had uh, committed the murders. Shortly before he confessed, Miskelly told police of rumors that Eccles and Birch had committed the crimes. Police had arrested Birch in July 1991 on charges of burglarizing Skate World, which is a hangout for all three of these killers, of about $200, and in August 1991 for criminal trespass and fleeing from a police officer. Among his friends were Jason Baldwin, not the one who that lives at Lakeshore, unquote, and Ricky Clammer, who had moved away. After the arrest, Ricky Clymer, C-L-I-M-E-R, unlike the note from Birch, which had, Burks, which had said uh, C-L-I-M-M-E-R, gave a lurid statement about his own involvement in violent occult activities with Eccles, the Lakeshore Baldwin, and who is not, quote, the other Jason Baldwin, unquote, who lived in Memphis. West Memphis, and we'll talk about him a little bit, and Miskelly, but named no other participants. In other words, Clymer, who was friends with Robert Burks, had uh, told, gave a statement that police took somewhat seriously about uh, his involvement with um, in the in these these occult rites with Eccles, Jason Bald, the Jason Baldwin we're most familiar with, and Miskelly. Um, police talked to Burke, uh, Burks on uh, May 15th about the murders. Burks said he had got home about from work about 4.10 p.m. on May 5th and couldn't remember going anywhere. 
again, not much of a alibi, but kind of hard to disprove too. <laughs> Bert Burks had said that he had been at uh, Skate World on May. Uh, Birch. I keep call, I'm, get, I'm getting mixed up now. His name's Robert Birch. Uh, uh, Birch said he had been at Skate World on May 14th and had talked to the Lakeshore Baldwin there. Baldwin told him that some, quote, some detectives, unquote, had said that he and Baldwin were the killers. When I say he, I'm talking about Birch, Birch and Baldwin were the killers. Birch knew Baldwin from when he had lived at Highland Trailer Park, which is where Miss Kelly lived, and which was across the way from, on, off, over on the other side of I-55 from uh, Lakeshore Trailer Park, where Baldwin live, and I, I presume there was there seems to have been quite a bit of back and forth between these two areas. Um, Birch didn't know any of the Lakeshore Baldwin's friends except Miss Skelly and Charles Ashley Jr. Which tends to, that that alone tends to discount the idea that Jason Baldwin wasn't friends with. Jesse Miskelly, which is easily disproved, that the idea that he wasn't friends is easily disproved. He was, they were pretty good friends at some point. Uh, but Birch knew Miskelly as one of Baldwin's friends. Anyway, Birch reported on rumors he had heard about the Wren brothers and Frankie Knight. Birch was an associate of the Wrens. Michael Wren was an inmate at the time of the killings. Uh, David Shane Wren, his brother, lived at the Mayfair Apartments. Frankie Knight, the Wren's stepbrother, also lived there. Shane Peden, who's another kid around town, told police that he had heard that Michael and David Wren were part of a cult that required them to kill an animal and a human. Michael Andrew Griffin, another kid, said he had heard that Michael and David Wren committed the murders to get into a cult. He said Chris Luttrell and Murray Ferris were in a group of white witches. Well, that statement's actually true, uh, according to Chris Luttrell and Murray Ferris themselves. Damien Eccles pointed to L.G. Hollingsworth Jr. L.G. Hollingsworth Jr. pointed to Damien Eccles. Eccles also named, quote, the other Jason Baldwin, unquote, not his friend from Lakeshore, <coughs> but the obese teen who lived in the neighborhood of the victims and was friends with Robert Birch and Jerry Nerns as a potential suspect. Uh, a list of potential suspects were shown to uh, Aaron Hutchison on uh, June 2nd, which was the day before the uh, arrests were made in the case. Jason, uh, Jesse Miskelly confessed on June 3rd, 1993. And that list that was shown to Aaron Hutchison included Frankie Knight, Jerry Nerns, Murray Ferris, L.G. Hollingsworth, Tracy Laxton, James K. Martin, and Michael Leader, some of whom had been cleared as suspects or had alibis of varying strength. Though the WMPD has often been accused of focusing single-mindedly on Eccles, their photo spread contained no photo of Eccles or Baldwin, or Miss Skelly for that matter. It had already been established that Ferris was at a church at the time of the killings. Hollingsworth would continue to raise suspicions, gaining, gaining notoriety as, quote, the fourth suspect, unquote. We'll get into his story later in this series of podcasts. Uh, the police had questioned Nerns on May 14th after a former neighbor, a West Memphis High teacher named Beverly McCarty, had claimed that Nerns had a history of intimidating children and boasted openly, including in a class paper, of stealing from his friends, quote, stealing from his friends and killing people, unquote. Nerns had been arrested the previous year for breaking into her home. 
This tip, with no evidence of any link between Nerns and the killing, killings, was duly followed up by police. Nerns authorized police to search his home. Nerns told police he had not been in Robin Hood Hills in eight or nine months and said he was friends with the, the other Jason Baldwin, which is this obese teen that lived in West Memphis and not Lakeshore. Uh, Nerns had seen signs of suspicious activity at the old Dab school in West Memphis before it burned down, but gave no indication that he was involved in a cult. Nerns passed a polygraph test and was not considered a suspect. The, uh, the Dab school had also been looked at in the initial, a year before had been looked at uh, initial investigation for occult activities, and they found some evidence that it, that it was being used as, as the site of some sort of rituals, just based on the markings that were left there and some, other, and some, some of the debris. Tracy Laxon had emerged as a possible suspect on May 15th after a caller reported, quote, three kids eight or nine years old, quote, unquote, running away from a, quote, white male on the railroad tracks unquote, behind the Goodyear store on Missouri Street in West Memphis. It's the same railroad tracks running behind Missouri Street that I alluded to earlier. The children were not found, but police did find the collars at the bowling alley at the Holiday Plaza Mall, also on Missouri. The collars were David Sims, 22, Dennis Carter, 15, and Jesse Miskelly Jr., which is very odd overall. Uh, they told Mike Allen, who was uh, the officer that accompanied uh, Miss Kelly to the police station that morning, uh, the morning of June 3rd when he confessed, that Laxton had approached them and asked if they want to come to his camp and drink beer. Miss Kelly and friends professed to be scared because of the murders and called police. Laxton, who was the son of Crittenden County Chief Detective Ed Laxton, was stranded after his car had broken down. He was unaware of the murders and was in eastern Mississippi on May 5th. Everything about that episode is strange, but it has nothing to do with the killings except that one of the killers called in a tip for somebody else. Go figure. Uh... And if you want to use that as a uh, rationale for uh, alleging that uh, Miss Kelly is innocent, then and it's been done, and it is a kind of an argument, but it's pretty weak. Um, police received a tip May 12th about Michael Leader, who lived with his mother in the Mayfair apartments. The tipster told police, quote, he drinks a lot and is into drugs. Hasn't seen him since this happened, unquote. Leader was arrested on a warrant for hot checks on May 25th. He passed a polygraph exam and told police he was staying at the 8th Street Rescue Mission at the time of the murders. Records confirm that. He encouraged police to check out, quote, a strange-looking guy, unquote, living in the Mayfair apartments. So even the potential suspects are happy to point towards somebody else. Uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know any reason why anybody would think that Michael Leader was actually involved in, in this, this at all. Um, you can see the tipsters were really anybody who just might have, might possibly have something to do with it was, could get a call in. Um, but you can see the police were checking out these tips. They just simply didn't ignore it. And if, you know, if for some reason uh, the leader tip, had, for any reason, seemed to be panning out, let's, let's suggest they would have pursued it further. Police also checked out James Kenny Martin, a petty criminal and registered sex offender, who had served time and had washed out of sex offender treatment programs. He told police he knew at least one of the dead boys by name, though it was not clear which boy. 
The polygraph indicated deception in his denials that he knew what was used to tie up the boys and who killed them. He denied any role in the killings. The polygraph did not indicate deception about that. Martin explained that logic told him that shoelaces would be used because they were already there. The shoelace bindings were not public knowledge. On the face of it, that seems uh, the face of it that seems very incriminating, and indeed, everything about James K. Martin reeks of creepiness uh, and suspicion. I'm not saying he, I'm not saying that he had anything to do with the killings because I have no evidence that he did, but. If you're looking for alternative suspects, you could do much worse than James K. Martin. And yet, you know, it's, it's that name's rarely banded about. Uh, read further on. Uh, a police memo described Martin in one word, quote, nuts, unquote. But, but much like Eccles, he had put a lot of thought into how the killings were carried out. He thought that Stevie's father may have killed the boys. And in a later interview, he specifically alluded to Terry Hobbs and outlined a scenario that sounded much like later allegations about Hobbs. Martin's wife, Darlene, told police that Martin had been with her all May 5th until he went to work from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. at the flash market on Broadway. Martin was on vacation from his regular job at W.B. Davis Electrical Supply in Memphis. <coughs> Martin was cleared as a suspect on May 18th. Martin also described hearing about the boys from his girlfriend, Barbara McCafferty, at about 6 p.m. on May 5th, which is actually just impossible. She, he couldn't have heard about about the boys from her on uh, 6 p.m. on May 5th because nobody really knew the boys were even missing to the degree that they were missing at that time on May 5th. More credibly, McCafferty told police she had gone to Martin's home to borrow a drill about five along with her 14-year-old twins. She said his wife pulled up and they talked, quote, until about dark, about 7.30. McCafferty passed along a rumor about a white van circling the area. So a white van pops up again. Uh, Brian Ridge and James Sud Sudbury, two police officers, interviewed Martin on May 19th with his ostensible aim of gaining insights on sex offenders and got more than they bargained for. Martin saw himself as a Hannibal Lecter character, a, quote, psycho nut, unquote, helping out the law. Martin described how the boys could have been led into believing they were, that being tied up was part of a game. Because of the apparent lack of blood, and there actually was quite a bit of blood at the scene. It, uh, a lot of it had soaked into the ground, and it was not. Uh, a lot of it was washed away, and it showed up in luminol tests. But it was it did. There was a apparent lack of blood at the scene. No doubt, doubt about that. Uh, because of the apparent lack of blood, Martin believed the boys were killed nearby, with the ditch as a dump site. He, he described how sex offenders would molest boys from behind without anal penetration, and how, with their hands tied, boys could be coerced into giving oral sex, much in line with how Miss Kelly described the assaults. Uh, to solve the case, Martin advised, quote, you got to think sick. Um, his description does, descriptions of the Oral assaults would also coincide with uh, Frank Peretti's description of how the boys could have been manipulated, physically handled and manipulated into performing these acts, which would explain the damage 
damage to their ears, which is something that was apparently commonly used in this sort of uh, manipulation. Back to the text. Martin's obsessive talk about child molesting prompted police to drop off a copy of his interview with a Memphis psychiatrist for further evaluation. Um, and I wrote this last in July, not 2016. Martin, now living in Johnson City, remained on the Tennessee Sex Offender Registry as of July 2016, where his status was listed as, quote, active and his classification, quote, violent. His most recent offense dates back to 1988. So he's, look, there have been allegations from family members online of things going on since then. I have no way of verifying that, but the last time he was, apparently, I haven't checked lately, last time he was arrested and charged was in 1988. Okay, that's enough of James K. Martin. Good ready. He's a, he's the sleaziest character of the bunch, I, I believe. Uh, he did describe how uh, the, I would hesitate to say too much about this, but he did describe how the boys could have been salt, assaulted from behind without actually, and not still not have had tears to the anus because they weren't actually penetrated. Um, and I think we can just sort of use, you know, you may you probably don't want to use your imagination much on that as I don't, but I get the general idea, um, and it it's possible that uh, what uh, Miskelly saw was indeed a, a version of that when he described the boys being assaulted from behind by Baldwin and Eccles. Investigators talked, back to the text, investigators talked to Frankie Knight on May 11th. He passed the polygraph test. And Frankie Knight is friends, uh, stepbrother of uh, the Wren brothers, who, by the way, are that, that family is friends with uh, the Eccles, the Hutchinson family, Damien Eccles' family. They were then, they still are, uh, is what I can see. Uh, they pat, he passed the polygraph test. He'd been in Robin Hood Hills the day of the search, talking to the search and rescue team. Knight had not gone to school the day of the killings, but offered no strong alibi. He knew two of the boys by sight and described several suspicious characters in the neighborhood. He had heard rumors about his brother, which he claimed were spread by a black youth named Dwayne Newsom. Knight thought Eccles was the killer. This is on May 11th that Eccles could kill the boys himself or have someone do the deed. He described Eccles as, quote, crazy, unquote, and involved in black magic. A week before the homicides, he had seen Eccles in Robin Hood Hills shooting snakes. Okay. David Wren, who was uh, Frankie Knight's stepbrother, passed a polygraph on... May 13th. He said he had been with a Beverly Houston at the time of the murders and she confirmed his story. Wren admitted knowing Eccles and some of his friends. Police had na the names of other possible cult members and an otherwise undated note stamped July 30th, 1993 were listed Danny Barrero, Jason Baldwin, uh, Jeff Looney, Christy Looney, Daniel Warwick, Tina Barrero, Kevin Mike Riggs, Tim Harbin, Bo Manuel, and Roger Conley. The note contained no mention of Jesse Miskelly Jr., Damian Eccles, Dominique Teer, or Deanna Holcomb, L.G. Hollingsworth Jr., Murray Ferris, or Chris Luttrell. It was not clear if the Jason Baldwin listed was the Lakeshore Baldwin or the, quote, the other Jason Baldwin, unquote. And it's, it's, also not clear when the date the note was actually 
dated from. It was stamped July 30th, but a lot of the materials that were used in the initial investigation weren't stamped until later. And bolstering that argument to a slight extent is the fact that police talked, to quote here, police talked to Jeffrey Looney on May 27th. Looney, a 19-year-old West Memphis youth who had worked in maintenance at a motel, told police he had lived in the Mayfair apartments when he was in 10th grade and had not been in Robin Hood since he was 10. He said he doesn't mess with cults and knew some people at Lakeshore, but not Damien or Dominie. Looney said, Looney said he had seen a girlfriend at the Mayfair on Wednesday or Thursday at about 6 p.m., about two weeks before the murders. He took a polygraph test. No deception was indicated. Other than Jason Baldwin, there was no record that police talked to anyone else on the list of possible cult members, nor is it clear how the other names ended up on the list. The witch hut of cultists was a bust. Around and around the rumors went. The police checked them out as best they could. And... I think I'm, this is going to wrap it up for the day, uh, maybe a little shorter than some of the other episodes, but uh, covered a lot in terms of other potential suspects, a lot of names, as you can see, and they did run polygraphs, otherwise investigate these other suspects. Uh, none of the other investigations panned out. In some cases, they were, they reached a dead end, such as I was home that evening, which was actually the initial alibis for all three of the West Memphis Three, which is one of the few things that Baldwin actually gave before he was, his mother told him to clamp, clam up. Uh, but they all said they were home that evening and really had no other alibi to speak of, and they would have been better off with those alibis than the alibis they came up with, because those alibis were lies. Anyway, this is Gary Meese signing off. Uh, talk to you again soon. Bye.